My brother need not be idealized or enlarged in death beyond what he was in life. To be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it, saw suffering and tried to heal it, saw war and tried to stop it. Those of us who loved him and who take him to his rest today pray that what he was to us and what he wished for others will someday come to pass for all the world. Ted Kennedy delivered the eulogy at his brother Bobby's funeral on June 8, 1968 at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, just three days after Bobby had been assassinated. Thirteen months later, Ted drove his car off a narrow wooden bridge and plunged into the water below, leaving his passenger, 28-year-old Mary Jo Kopechny, to die. Many people say you can't understand Chappaquiddick unless you understand the effect of Bobby's death on his younger brother. On June 5, 1968, Ted was at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco, watching the California Democratic primary returns. Bobby won the primary and seemed well on his way to winning the Democratic nomination and possibly the presidency. After Ted watched his brother and his wife Ethel greet supporters in the ballroom of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, he returned to his room. When he turned the television on, he learned that his brother had been shot. My mind went black, he wrote in his 2009 memoir. He arrived at the hospital at 3 a.m., just as doctors began surgery in an attempt to save his brother's life. But Bobby died the following morning. One of Ted's closest friends, Senator John Tunney, once said Chappaquiddick was a direct result of what happened to Bobby a year earlier. Tunney had been a law school classmate of Ted's, and in a 2009 interview with the Miller Center, Tunney described his friend's extraordinary grief that summer of 1969. I could tell there was a wildness in his brain, he said. There was kind of a wildness there that was almost a flaunting of rules of the game, so to speak, because he was so angry. There was an anger that he felt about the unfairness of the way his brothers had been gunned down. The loss of his three older brothers, Joe Jr., JFK, and Bobby, thrust Ted into a position he never expected. His father, Joe, had a severe stroke in 1961 that left him paralyzed on his right side and unable to speak. Now Ted, the youngest of Joe and Rose Kennedy's nine children, was the sole surviving son and the head of the family, not only of his own family and his three children, but also as a father figure to Jack's two kids, Caroline and John Jr., and to the 11 children of Bobby and Ethel. And in the wake of Bobby's death, he was now also considered a front runner for the presidency. For Ted, it was overwhelming, neither as politically ambitious as Jack, nor as tough or as much a visionary as Bobby. He had to live up to the expectations of his powerful father and the hopes of half the nation that saw him as their savior from the likes of Richard Nixon, all at a time when he was personally devastated. In the year that followed, Ted was drinking too much, and he feared he might be killed next. He was shattered. How could he not be? Previously on Cover Up. I was overcome. I'm frank to say, by a jumble of emotions, grief, fear, doubt, exhaustion, panic, confusion, and shock. 
They never had those last moments of their daughter's life from anybody. And Mr. Gargan said to him, oh, this is now worse than it was last night. We've got to report the accident. We've got to report it right now. Mr. Kennedy says, I'm going to say that Mary Jo was driving the car. And Joe Gargan again says, you can't say that. Why would another woman's pocketbook be in that car? I regard as indefensible the fact that I did not report the accident to the police immediately. That meant that there had been a period of time where she could have been saved if we had been called at the time of the accident. Whoever was involved in this had to go buy a house with a light on. And it's always been a question in my mind why somebody wouldn't stop with a house with a light on and ask to use the phone if there were such an incident that occurred. The innkeeper tells him it's approximately half past two in the morning and is there anything else he can do to help him? Uh, Mr. Kennedy does not say to him, well, I've had an accident and where's the police station? No. He says no. He returns to his room and from all of the evidence that I have been able to gather from all of the people I talked to who were with Mr. Kennedy the next morning, mm-hmm. he went to sleep. I'm Liz McNeil, and this is Cover Up. Over three decades later, in an interview with Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes, Ted's youngest son, Patrick Kennedy, said his father had lived in silent desperation for many years. When my Uncle Bobby was killed, it was like absolutely the floor dropped out for my father. Absolutely the floor. Because they got to be buddies in the United States Senate. Those were the glory days for my dad. You ever ask anyone, my dad was the happiest he ever was when he had his brother. Then his brother was killed. Boom. Over. Show over. My dad never got to grieve. He had to be there for the country. Tell me what's welling up in you. You didn't (laughs) know Bobby. You were one years old. Yeah. But I knew the pain that came from his having been killed because... I saw my father kind of live in silent desperation for most of his life. In 2015, Patrick wrote a memoir, Common Struggle, about his family's struggles with mental health and addiction, including that of his parents with alcohol. Patrick said his father also suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And he said because no one ever spoke about the trauma, they were all like zombies. Chappaquiddick was another subject they didn't talk about. Patrick said they only spoke about it once, on a beach walk, when Patrick was 12 years old. I guess you could call it a conversation. I learned more about this by, you know, looking in the books and newspapers and articles and on TV. Do you think Chappaquiddick had an impact on you? I couldn't even talk about it. I was hostage to the family code that, no. Don't say anything about it. Anything you say, it's disloyal. It's against the family code. And it doesn't matter whether it's in a private therapy session. That psychiatrist could go out and tell somebody. One friend of Ted's who spoke to me but asked me not to use his name said this about his inner turmoil. He told me on more than one occasion that he was absolutely convinced that he would die in an assassination attempt. It's just a question of when. Why wouldn't he believe that? They were hated by the extreme right and the nutball left, or fringe. And atop that, said his friend, was Ted's own regret. Here's what his friend said. At the same time, this atonement issue, deeply, darkly Catholic as it is, 
he felt like he let himself, his family, and the country down in Chappaquiddick. He was just a very, very generous, well-intentioned human whose prime problem was living with the Kennedy myth, the mythology, living up to all the nonsense. The myth. How much of it was our imagination or what people wanted to believe? Maybe both sides were true, the good and the bad, from the noblest aspirations and ideals to the dark side of manipulation, ruthlessness, entitlement. And Ted and what happened at Chappaquiddick may be the perfect metaphor for that. 1968 was the year that changed America. Walter Cronkite told the American public the Vietnam War could not be won. LBJ dropped out of the presidential race, and Bobby entered it. Martin Luther King was shot dead in Memphis. Anti-war protesters at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago were tear-gassed and clubbed. And JFK's widow, Jackie Kennedy, married the shipping billionaire, Aristotle Onassis, and became Jackie O. Bobby ran for president with a mission to save the nation and set it right. He believed he could, and his supporters believed it as well. His assassination left Ted as the last man standing, the only one who could carry the torch. Not only for the Kennedys, but for what they represented to millions of people, and for all the good they had done on behalf of the poor, the disenfranchised, the forgotten, the fight they had led for civil rights and economic and social justice something for which Ted Kennedy would later be remembered. Ted was the Kennedy who would go on to accomplish more in the Senate and more legislatively than anyone else in the family. But his father, Joe, a man who prized achievement above all else, never expected his youngest son to amount to much. Here's Burton Hirsch. He's the author of Edward Kennedy, an intimate biography. He first met Ted when they were both at Harvard and stayed in touch throughout his life. Ted was regarded as the clown of the family, the guy, you know, the fat boy, the guy that couldn't, uh, couldn't get it right. And that was, uh, that was a burden to him. He was an uh, afterthought in terms of the skills of his brothers. It was hard for him because, you know, he idolized his brothers. But Ted felt that Bobby was a superhuman, and, and certainly Jack. Ted had a history of reckless behavior. In 1951, while a freshman at Harvard, he asked a fellow student to take a Spanish exam for him. He was caught cheating and was expelled for two years. Later, as a law student at the University of Virginia, he was arrested for reckless driving after a chase with police. When the officer finally approached the car, he found Ted lying flat across the front seat, hiding. By this time, Ted had collected a number of traffic tickets, mostly for speeding and running red lights. But at home, Ted bowed to his father's will. Here's Kennedy biographer Larry Lemer. The old man was this kind of biblical force, powerful man, who whatever the world thought of him, and the world didn't think much of him in the end, they loved him. And they couldn't believe, they couldn't understand why everybody didn't love him and loved him and feared him and felt they had to act right to deserve his love. That was the great hell of Chappaquiddick for Teddy, too, in that he betrayed his father. And his father did teach those kids. He wanted he wanted them to be these powerful figures. He felt that politics was where power in America was going to be. He wanted his sons to be there. And that's what they were to do in the world, and that's what they did. The young man, Teddy, wanted to leave. He and Joan, they wanted to go out to the West and start a life on their own. But the father wouldn't let them do it. The father said, no, you stay here. This is your life. Imagine having that power over a grown son. 
With his brothers off at school, it was his eldest sister, Rosemary, who often watched over him. She's the Kennedy sister who was born with a developmental disability that was never clearly diagnosed. Rosemary was gentle and beautiful. At a young age, her parents noticed she was not as coordinated as her siblings and did not excel at sports. They grew concerned and sent her to a series of boarding schools for the intellectually challenged, but she never progressed beyond the third or fourth grade level. In her early 20s, Rosemary began to attract male attention. At her boarding school, the nuns discovered she sometimes went missing at night and found her wandering the streets at 2 a.m. Her father, then focused on the political future of his eldest sons, worried she was sexually active and feared an unwanted pregnancy. In 1941, when Rosemary was 23 years old, her father scheduled a lobotomy, which scraped away the frontal lobe of her brain. The procedure was a disaster and left her with the mental capacities of a toddler. Afterwards, she was sent to live at a Catholic school for the disabled in Wisconsin, where she was looked after by nuns. She lived there for 56 years until her death in 2005. After the lobotomy, no one told Ted, then eight years old, what had happened to his eldest sister and he thought he might disappear too if he did not do what his father wanted. Those same fears of displeasing his father returned after Chappaquiddick. Ted told author Burton Hirsch he was dealing with the suppressed anxieties of the eight-year-old who dreaded that he would prove unworthy of his father, like the lobotomized Rosemary, and disappear as well. I asked him once about Rosemary. This is toward the end, the end of his life. And he said, well, you know, she... She was supposedly retarded, but in fact, emotionally, she was the most accessible of, our, of my siblings, the, the, the person that I could deal with the best. And uh, then one day, um, she disappeared. And after a while, she, he found out, the children found out, that she had been lobotomized unsuccessfully and had, uh, and had really lost what capability, intellectual capability she'd had. And uh, I said to him, I said, what, what did you think? when you found that out. He said, well, he said, frankly, Burton, he said, I thought if I don't do what Dad wants, he'll do that to me. And that, I think, is uh, that element of that layer of fear that all of all the children shared of, of their father, who was capable of, uh, you know, had somewhat ruthless impulses at times. It, it, may, it drove them to accomplishment, but it, it, it haunted them and, and produced some uh, big emotional problems and and personal problems of one kind or another in, in virtually all the children. When Ted told his father about the accident at Chappaquiddick, Joe Kennedy stopped eating, and he died four months later, on November 18, 1969. Here's author Burton Hirsch. He felt his father was so disheartened by the Chappaquiddick situation that that's what caused him to stop eating, starve himself. And he ultimately starved to death. And Bob and Ted said, you know, I, I killed my father. And if you understand the complicated dynamics of the Kennedy family, where they, they were once totally dependent on, on the father financially and in terms of his, um, um, you know, his many skills in manipulation and publicity and, and afraid of him. And yet he was the emotional center of the family, much more than Rose Kennedy. This was a very heavy burden for Ted for the rest of his life. He said to me, I killed my father. The after-effects of Chappaquiddick reverberated for years, not just for Ted, but also for his wife, Joan Kennedy, who had a miscarriage nearly six weeks after the accident. The marriage was already on the rocks by this time. 
Joan later traced her struggles with alcohol back to the Chappaquiddick scandal and the stories of Ted's womanizing. In a 1979 interview with McCall's magazine, she said, rather than get mad or ask questions concerning the rumors about Ted and his girlfriends or really stand up for myself at all, it was easier to just go and have a few drinks and calm myself down as if I was not hurt or angry. The rumors, she said, went to the core of my self-esteem. Patrick wrote about his mother's battle with alcoholism in his 2015 book, which he also addressed with Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes. What was it like growing up with your mother? It was so tense. My mother clearly would be inebriated and under the influence. She would walk around in the middle of the day, you know, in a terry cloth bathrobe. And the amazing thing is, here you have all of these leading policymakers in the country in and out of the house, coming in and out, watching this, and no one saying a word. The shame just becomes... You felt the shame. Oh, my God. I felt like, oh, my God, they're going to see. Mom, quick, let's get back into your room. Don't let any... You know, I just understood this was not something that you want anyone to see. Now 81 years old, Joan lives quietly in Boston. She is fragile, one of her closest friends told me. It took courage for Joan to admit her alcoholism back in the late 70s, when it wasn't something most people, especially women, revealed. And it seems callous how Joan was sometimes criticized or cast aside for having an alcohol problem, especially when she tried to be honest about her pain. In the days following the accident, Joan appeared by her husband's side, first at Mary Jo's funeral, and then again, two days later, on the steps of the Edgartown Courthouse, when Ted pleaded guilty to leaving the scene of an accident. Kennedy biographer Larry Lemer wrote about Joan in his book, The Kennedy Women, for which he interviewed her. Chappaquiddick was the most devastating psychological moment of her life. Joan told him her struggles with alcohol escalated with Chappaquiddick. And while she was often dismissed by the Kennedy family for being weak in their eyes, they needed her at Ted's side after the crisis. Look, they needed her at that moment. He'd kind of dismissed her as a wife. He had a mistress that he was thinking of marrying, even before that he, that he loved, and suddenly needed Joan. Not that they were going to bring uh, Joan into the discussion how to handle that, but they were pushing her forward when they needed her, like going to the funeral. She had to be at the funeral. And she, she had to put it on the show. And if she drank more heavily after that, it's understandable. She didn't want to marry him. The Kennedys wanted Ted to get married. But they were afraid he was going to get somebody pregnant or get in some other kind of trouble with the kind of women he was dating. And here was this beautiful, virginal Catholic woman at Manhattanville College and perfect match for him. They never even were alone when they were dating. There's always a chaperone. And they got engaged, and she wanted out. And her father wanted to, and they went to Mr. Kennedy and said, we want out, and he, or at least to postpone this for a year. And Mr. Kennedy said, no, you're not. We're, we're Kennedys. You're not going to embarrass us. You're going through with this. And Ted wanted out, too. His closest friend, who was also close to a friend of mine, had, had dinner with, went out with drinking with Teddy the night before the, 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 the wedding. And he wanted out even then. He said, I, want to, I don't want to marry this woman. I don't love this woman. Why? I don't want to marry her. But they went through with the wedding. And afterwards, they went for their honeymoon. And one of the gifts had been a film of the wedding. And they came back from the honeymoon. And Joan, of course, wanted to see the film of the glorious wedding. 
And she sat there watching it. And right before the ceremony, uh, Teddy and Jack are behind the altar and they're talking. And Jack says to Teddy, you don't worry, Teddy. You can, you're going to marry him, but you're going to be able to do, do what I do. You can be able to do just what you want to when you get married. It's not going to matter. And Joan, the bride, the loving bride, sees that and realizes in some measure what is in store for her. Ted was quick to dispel rumors he had been having an affair with Mary Jo Kopechny. In his televised address to the nation, he made it clear. There is no truth, no truth whatever, to the widely circulated suspicions of immoral conduct that have been leveled at my behavior and hers regarding that evening. There has never been a private relationship between us of any kind. I know of nothing in Mary Jo's conduct on that or any other occasion. And the same is true of the other girls at that party that would lend any substance to such ugly speculation about their character. Nor was I driving under the influence of liquor. Now that we've explored the moment in the life of Ted Kennedy, it's important to explore the moment in the life of Mary Jo Kopechny. Maybe in the same way you can't understand Chappaquiddick unless you understand the effect of Bobby's death on Ted. The same could be said for Mary Jo, that one has to understand the effect of Bobby's death on her, which brings us to the question of who really was Mary Jo Kopechny. The stories following her death were always about Ted, never about Mary Jo. The day after her body was found, the headline of the New York Daily News read, Teddy Escapes, Blonde Drowns. And that about sums up the coverage. It's just amazing to me. And nobody talks about Mary Jo, except the papers would describe her as blonde 28-year-old secretary. It was so unlike her. I mean, if you use the term blonde secretary, it's like something out of Mad Men. I mean, she just was not that way. That's Ellie Kluge, a college friend of Mary Jo's, who reconnected with her when they were both living in Washington, D.C. Mary Jo was a small-town girl with big dreams. She was passionate, she was political, she worked 24-7, and she was a true believer. She played a key role in Bobby's campaign, handling correspondence, researching convention delegates, and canvassing for votes. She had traveled to Los Angeles for the Democratic primary and was at the Ambassador Hotel the night he was assassinated. And she was there, along with some of the family's closest friends, on the slow-moving funeral train that carried Bobby's casket from New York City to Arlington Cemetery, where he was buried next to his brother, Jack. Mary Jo was the only child of Joseph Kopechny, an insurance salesman, and his wife, Gwen, a stay-at-home mom who occasionally worked at Bamberger's department store. She was studious, driven, and a little reserved. But all these details were left out at the time. That's why her cousin, Georgetta Patowski, wants her story to be told. When I first met Georgetta last year, one of the first things she told me was that Mary Jo was never supposed to be in Chappaquiddick that weekend. She was supposed to go somewhere else to another state to do, I think, collecting campaign funds and things like that. And Mm -hmm. she got someone to cover for her so she could attend the reunion. Her father's family came from Lithuania, They were devout Catholics, a family of coal miners, and they pronounced their name Kopechny. After graduating from college with a business degree, she worked for a year in Montgomery, Alabama, in low-income schools. 
JFK's ideal, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, Mary Jo believed in that. It was a a very deep emotional experience for her. I remember her saying that she she didn't expect to be um, so emotionally involved with the students as she became. They became very, very important to her, and she really wanted to help um, the students. But I think at one point she might have even felt maybe a little overwhelmed um, because, you know, teaching requires a lot. You give a lot Mm -hmm. when you teach. And um, so uh, she loved it. That was Georgetta Patowski. She's now 78 years old. Her mom and Mary Jo's mom were sisters. After returning to New Jersey, Mary Jo joined a theater group. There, during a production of Carousel, she began a sweet romance with a man named Dick Toole. Mary Jo was very, um, mostly quiet, and um, I wasn't real outgoing either, but um, we kind of enjoyed each other's company, and we, um, the common interest was that we, <laughs> we weren't overly talented, but we kind of enjoyed making scenery, and I'd give her a lift to the practice area, and uh, neither one of us were <laughs> stars. She wasn't flamboyant. She was quite friendly and um, not terribly outgoing, but she was easy to talk to and easy to be with. I found her attractive, a little blondie, and... Um, She was very, very likable. After Mary Jo moved to Washington, D.C., she got a job working for George Smathers, a Florida senator. They weren't um, exactly politically on the same wavelength. He was uh, more liberal than I think uh, Mary Jo was comfortable with. So she kept sending her resume over to Bobby Kennedy's (laughs) office. And uh, at one point, Bobby Kennedy borrowed her from Senator Smathers. And uh, Senator Smathers says, we might as well take her. It's not my picture she's got on her desk. Yes, I thought uh, the world of him and his family. She was a very family man, and that was important to Mary Jo. She worked for Bobby for four years as one of the boiler room girls. Off hours, she had fun with her friends, such as Bob Kluge. He married Ellie Kluge in 1968. It was really a, a good, fun group of people and pretty interested in a lot of what was going on around Washington. We really thought it was, we were going to change the world and based on what's going on in Washington, we used to have some really fun parties. I also spoke with Owen Lopez. He was a recent law school graduate who dated Mary Jo. We all partied a lot. We got together for dinner. We often cooked and uh, we'd drink and we'd play charades. <laughs> and uh, Mary Jo was brilliant at it. <laughs> Mary Jo and I hit it off, and so we dated. Uh, she was really smart, she was lovely, and she was as straight and narrow as they make them. She was my date in um, my law school, third year law school dance party in South Bend. So she flew out for that is, and you know, for dinner and dancing. And uh, she, you know, insisted that I have a place for her to stay, not at my apartment. So she stayed with my landlady. Mary Jo was also close to her co-workers, the Boiler Room Girls. Since her death, the women have almost never spoken about that night. Six of them attended the reunion party on Chappaquiddick, the night Mary Jo died. 
but there were two additional boiler room girls who did not attend the party. One, Carol Pelosi, died in 2016. The other, Kay Rusko Martin, told me how the group got their nickname. I think it goes back to um, John Kennedy's campaign. I think that was uh, the first boiler room. It's, it's kind of a phrase used now when you're talking about robocalls. And she and I were both assigned to the boiler room the first weekend of the campaign. Boiler room existed uh, to keep tally of the uh, delegates who were committed to the senator and um, also to kind of oversee the campaign activities in each of the states that we were assigned to. Kay was making a pot roast one night when I called her earlier this year. She was surprised to get my call, but happy to talk about Mary Jo and their work together for Bobby. It was an interesting time. (laughs) That's for sure. We were so fortunate to have been able to be in that position. And um, I think that the, the true character of the senator was just beginning to be understood and accepted uh, as that campaign was proceeding. He was very, very compassionate. He was very easily moved by the sadness and plights of other people's lives and, and what they should have in their life and what they didn't have. And he just let who he truly was come out. I still remember him reminding us to make sure we'd go to, when there was a, ma- a holy day of obligation in the Catholic Church, <laughs> you, you go to Mass. He would remind us to make sure that we took time out and had a, you know, did you get to Mass today? <laughs> said, yes, yes, sir, I certainly did. But when I asked her about Ted, she declined to answer. That's more difficult to explain. Um, uh, he, you know, they were all different. And um, I, I don't know. I, I that's just don't want to get into that. If we're talking about Mary Jo, that's happy to do that. Her comment made me think the Boiler Room girls had more complex feelings about Senator Kennedy than previously understood. And maybe one of the reasons they've almost never spoken about that night. Last fall, I had a short conversation with one of the women, Susan Tannenbaum, a former lobbyist for the nonprofit Common Cause. She did not want to be interviewed but said, I suggest you speak to people she worked with for Robert Kennedy. That's who she worked for, and that's who she was devoted to. And so once again, it all circled back to Bobby. Mary Jo's cousin Georgetta says she was shattered by his death. They believed they had a mission. Mm -hmm. They believed they had a purpose for being there, and it was catastrophic when he was killed because everything they believed in all of a sudden was was gone. Not, they still believed all the things, but they didn't have the leader anymore. And it was devastating to all of them. It was such shock. I, dead, how could he be dead? How could somebody do that? So it took the wind out of all their sails for quite a while. And for a while, she, we didn't think she'd go back to uh, back on the hill. She went into a tailspin, they all did. Georgetta says after Bobby's death, Ethel Kennedy asked Mary Jo if she wanted to be the governess to her 11 children. But Mary Jo didn't want to be a governess. She wanted to make a difference. And by the way, she did not want to work for Ted Kennedy. She was trying to figure out what to do with her life. And um, she kind of um, went into a meditative state where she had to figure out what to do and and process what had happened Mm -hmm. and the unfairness and the 
the brutality of what was happening within the family, mm-hmm. the Kennedy family. What do we do now? Because no one was particularly fond of Ted. He didn't have the same drive and focus and uh, dedication, or it didn't seem to them that he did, that Bobby had had. So they, it, it wasn't the next person they would rally around. That was my impression. She wasn't particularly fond of him. They, he was kind of, they called him the office boy. Mm-hmm. He was a young man. He was finding his way in Washington as well. But he didn't have the, the focus that his brothers had had, at least not yet. Mary Jo eventually found work with Matt Reese, a prominent political consultant. She lived in Georgetown with three friends and drove a cute white Volkswagen. She was so slim, her friends called her Twiggy, and her love life was possibly complicated. Mary Jo dated a foreign service officer who specialized in East Asia. Georgetta says she was thinking of getting engaged. However, Ted's cousin, Joe Gargan, had said that Mary Jo and her boyfriend had recently broken up. The boyfriend's name has never been printed, but I was able to get it from a source. And when I called to ask if he'd share any memories of Mary Jo, he said he did not wish to participate. Several days before she died, Mary Jo called her parents. It was the last time they ever spoke. Here's her cousin, Georgetta. She called them and she said she had three things to tell them. That um, she had decided to, she would get engaged. She decided she would work for Matt Reese. And at that point, Joe got on the other line with Gwen. So she was talking to both her parents and they never did find out what the third thing was. I can't help but wonder, what was the third thing? Maybe it wasn't consequential, but what if it wasn't? In the same conversation, they also discussed her upcoming trip to Martha's Vineyard. Gwen told her daughter, honey, be careful of the water. To which Mary Jo replied, Mother, you know me. I only like to sunbathe. Four days later, on the morning of July 19th, Senator Kennedy called the Kopechnies. I don't remember. I don't think she remembered the words. Just that there had been an accident and Mary Jo had died. And she started to scream and scream and scream. And the neighbors came to see what was going on with her, to console her and get Jo and... She said he sounded very sorry, very sincere, very, um, I mean, can you imagine having to make that phone call? You don't, it's not something you say, oh, by the way. Um, So, but she doesn't remember much about what he said because the shock of it just destroyed her. She was having, it was a long time before she was able to function on a a normal level. Three days after Mary Jo's death, her parents attended the wake. They were sedated. Um, Joe was very stoic. He was very, made of stern stuff. But he was destroyed. His heart was broken. He was upstairs by the uh, casket by the viewing room and um, he, he was in a daze mm-hmm. he was greeting people but he wasn't there they have a room downstairs 
Oh, they had coffee and water and and Gwen was there and she was really sedated. Um, she came over and hugged me and she said to a glad that I was there and thank you for coming. And um, they, she was surrounded by people. I think that they were the boiler room girls. And they kept saying to her, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. The funeral was held on July 22nd at St. Vincent's Roman Catholic Church in Plymouth, Pennsylvania. The church, which held 500 people, was full. And outside, people lined the streets, along with a horde of photographers, hoping to get a glimpse of the Kennedys. The casket was open, and Mary Jo wore a light pink dress. A rosary had been placed in her hands. Ted Kennedy arrived wearing a neck brace, a move that some questioned as a ploy for sympathy. Mary Jo's friend Ellie Kluge, whom you heard earlier, also attended. Remember, the church was, one side was filled, of the church was filled with all these fancy Kennedy people and, you know, politicians. And I remember he had a neck brace on. I was irritated with them. And on Mary Jo's side, it was mostly nuns who had driven up from New Jersey and um, friends. It was a very small collection of people compared to the other size. And, of course, the media. So when the funeral mass was over, they all, you know, cluttered around uh, the Kennedys. And, you know, I hate to say it, he got away with murder. Mary Jo's family turned down Ted's offer to pay for the funeral. They used the money that they had been saving up for her wedding to pay for the services. They later received a settlement of a little over $140,000. According to Leo DeMore's senatorial privilege, $50,000 came from Ted's automobile insurance, and $90,923 came from the senator, a figure based on a percentage of Mary Jo's potential lifetime earnings. Georgetta says they gave half of the total sum to their parish. At first, the Kopechnys believed what Senator Kennedy had told them about the accident. Here's Mary Jo's cousin, Georgetta. The impression they got was from him, if you just just go along with us now and get through this, and then we'll explain everything later. They trusted him. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they loved the Kennedys. Mm-hmm. Everyone did. Within hours of hearing of their daughter's death, one of Ted's advisors arrived at the Kopechny home, offering to help. Ted's legislative aide, Dunn Gifford, arrived a day later. He had accompanied Mary Jo's body back from Edgartown. They came to their apartment, and they were um, answering the phone and answering the door. And Gwen said she thinks now they were screening people. She didn't think they were really helping her. But at the time, it seemed like they were helping because they were keeping people away from them. What they, their job They was. became confused about a lot of... Uh, a lot of what was going on because they thought at first that every these people were advising them because they cared about them and they wanted to, to comfort them. Mm-hmm. And later Gwen said that she thinks they were just making sure that the right things were done for the Kennedy regime. In the year that followed, Mary Jo's parents began to question things. Several months later, Ted invited them to Hyannis Port. The invitation finally came, and they thought, well, this is it. We're going to go up and we're going to talk and find out what happened. Mm -hmm. And when they got there, they walked into a cocktail party. 
And he came up and said hello to them and disappeared. So it ends up in the newspaper that everything is wonderful because the Kvechnys went to Hyannisport and they had a cocktail party with Ted Kennedy. I believe there was another meeting. I believe, and I, I believe, I remember uh, Gwen telling me that his mother was there. I believe it was in New York. And I believe that they went to meet with Ted and his mother was there. And she was talking to Gwen about fashion or something. And they wanted to talk to Ted and he disappears. And Gwen and Joe never had those last minutes of Mary Joe's life. No one has ever said to them, you know, um, I saw Mary Joe at the party. She was happy. She was looking forward to doing X, Y, or Z. She was, you know, enthusiastic about it, or uh, she wasn't, or we had a wonderful night. They never had those last moments of their daughter's life from anybody. I've grown close to Georgetta Patowski over the last few months. She lives in Pennsylvania's Wyoming Valley, not far from Scranton. She's the mom of eight children, all grown, and a grandmother to 11. And she and one of her sons, William, have established a scholarship in Mary Jo's name at Georgetta's alma mater, Misericordia University in Pennsylvania, so that people also remember Mary Jo in a good way, and not just for the way she died. Georgetta calls Mary Jo her true north, the person who always knew what to do, how to handle a situation. And she is upset that Mary Jo's parents never got a full explanation about what happened that night. Of Senator Kennedy, she says, I believe no matter what part he did or did not play in Mary Jo's death, that she died because of him. He knew it and knew he was responsible. There is so much we do not know. Georgetta hopes that someday someone will tell them more about her final hours. She doesn't understand why Mary Jo tested for such a high blood alcohol level. It's one of the many things she doesn't understand. She was not even a social drinker. If she had one drink, she'd nurse it all night. So if she had more, of course, if they were, she were visiting, it would be, wouldn't be um, unbelievable that she would have more than that. You know, if you're talking with your friends, uh, but three, four, would be totally out of character. The alcohol level led Mary Jo's friends to think something else happened that night, including her former boyfriend, Dick Toole. I didn't hate Teddy Kennedy, but I thought the guy was drunk. I wondered if he even knew she was in the car. She was the type of person that rather than break somebody's fun up, she might climb into the back seat and sleep. She was not a drinker. And the stories afterwards that he dived back in to try to get her out, I had a feeling that maybe he didn't even know she was there. Unless she changed 100% from what I knew her, she wasn't going off to go to a motel to have some action. It just didn't fit. Mary Jo's friend, Bob Kluge, also doubted the official version after he had a conversation with a man who knew someone in the Massachusetts State Police Department. He does not remember the man's name. I was having a cocktail in a hotel bar uh, before I went to dinner, I had talking to this guy, and I don't remember for just back and forth and back and forth, but he either had a very good friend whose brother was captain of the uh, Massachusetts State Police, or it was his brother who was a captain of the, of the Massachusetts State Police, who said that um, the gossip there was, and, and obviously he was 
he was convinced it was more than gossip, but that uh, what had really happened was that uh, Mary Jo and this group were at this get together. Mary Jo, who I, I, as I told you from 10 years before, but Mary Jo was not a big drinker. And Mary Jo had had a couple of drinks, uh, was not feeling well. And she went out and got in the back of, of the Oldsmobile and laid down and, and passed out. And then, and that Ted and one of the other ladies, I don't know, have no idea who it was, came, got in the car, uh, and started down the road. They intentionally drove, and we're going to um, take a go skinny dipping. And uh, and and then he missed and ended up in the water. They got both got out of the car, sat on a side hill, uh, laughing about it to some degree. When they realized that whoever it was, his uh, purse was missing, and uh, he uh, went back into the water to get the purse, and, and uh, that's when he encountered Mary Jo, who by that time had drowned, and uh, would have obviously uh, caused uh, some panic. And, and this was a guy who who clearly had who had a good job; he was well spoken. It was a very it was a very sober conversation. I mean, it was not not some drunk who was, you know, running his mouth at the bar. So one of Mary Jo's friends, Bob Kluge, had been told that she was asleep in the back seat when the car went over the bridge and that there had been another woman in the car. And two of her former boyfriends, Dick Toole and Owen Lopez, also believed she was asleep in the back seat. But that was because it was the only explanation that made sense to them. Could that be possible? This was only one of the theories we heard while looking into the case. Some people believed Mary Jo was alone in the car when it went over the bridge. Others believed the senator took the blame for another person who was driving that night. The more I looked into Chappaquiddick, the more I learned that so much of it had always been based on conjecture, because no one really knew what happened. There's a story Georgetta told me about a conversation she had with Mary Jo one summer day, wondering if they'd ever be famous. We were reading, Mary Jo and I used to love to read, and we were reading Gifts from the Sea by Anne Murrow Lindbergh. And she'd read a chapter, and then I'd read a chapter while we talk about it. I mean, who does that? We used to do that <laughs> when we were kids, when we would, well, I, I mean, for our family to get a box of books. Up there. Oh, my God. That was a treat. And we'd spread out the blankets in the backyard, and we'd read. And Anyway, that's what we were reading. It was kind of a bittersweet kind of a, a day because what did she ask me? Did she ask me, will we ever be famous or something like that? And I remember laughing at her and I said, no, because you're too skinny and I have wild red hair. And we'll end up, you'll end up with some do-gooder social organization <laughs> and I'll end up with a big bunch of kids. And it was poignant. And in a strange and very sad way, Mary Jo did become famous. No one knew anything about her, but her death would change the course of American presidential history. And this revealed another layer, how Chappaquiddick was connected all the way up to the White House and President Richard Nixon. And when you think about it, the Kennedys had shaped Nixon's entire political destiny in one way or another. Nixon had been denied the presidency by one Kennedy, JFK. And he became president because of the death of another, RFK, and now as the newly elected president of the United States, 
he was fearing another Kennedy on the horizon, Ted Kennedy. And President Nixon became fixated on Chappaquiddick. And the man who knew more about Chappaquiddick than anyone else happened to be working for Richard Nixon. On the next episode of Cover Up. I didn't care, Republican or Democrat, it didn't matter. I wanted the facts. So my investigation, I decided at that moment would start for what I call the splash. He, he called me around uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, and he told me what happened, that he desperately tried to save her. He had terrible trouble with his neck. He said every, his whole body was uh, shaking, and he, he was so afraid you know, that the car was going to go under and all that. From the moment of the splash, let me tell you, Don, everything was cover-up. A cover-up by commission and omission, by saying things that were lies and by omitting the truth. The Kennedys had the town wrapped, and it was also part of a general myth among reporters that you really don't touch the Kennedys. Now, that's an important thing. She said, well, sir... Just before you came in, a gentleman in a blue suit, in a dark blue suit, came in, and we gave him a handbag. No identity, no entry in the blotter. Just handed to him a vital piece of uh, evidence. It certainly dawned on me when my employer, NBC News, had delegated somebody to come to me and tell me that the Kennedys had called the network and asked that I be removed from the story. And so I reported to the Washington people, I want to tell you, somebody has got an open line in some police department, whether it's Massachusetts State Police, the local police, or both, but they are definitely erasing what a detective would be trying to follow. Cover Up is a joint production by People Magazine and Cadence 13. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. To share your thoughts and theories on the case, you can join our Facebook group to continue the discussion. Just search Cover Up. For more, go to people.com slash coverup, or to reach us directly, email coverup at people.com.